You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Damn it, Jim, I'm a coder, not a miracle worker. The world of medicine has a process for reviewing failure and looking for ways to prevent it from happening again. Failure is all too common in development. So we're going to look at how to apply what the medical community does to our projects and sprints. We'll discuss what a retrospective is in terms of Scrum, then talk about how to address failure when reviewing your process. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, over the last week, I have been fighting a lot of interruptions at work. Actually, more than last week, like last many months. And I've been tracking it. And last Thursday, um, between 8 and 11 in the morning, I was interrupted seven times for a total of 27 minutes. And the longest chunk of contiguous time that I got to actually work was 33 minutes. And so I've gone to management and I've been like, hey, look, if you want stuff done on time, I-, I need some days where I can actually focus. And they were pretty pleased with what I got done during the snow days. Because, you know, like I can sit here and I can work and I don't, I, I lose track of time almost, you know. Um, both of those days I got to like 3.30 and realized I hadn't eaten. And that's like anybody that knows me, that's not a thing I do. You know, like no. 11 o'clock, I'm ready to go eat. Yeah. And so if I get to 3.30 and, and, and they go, oh, I never did eat. And I'm, it's not because I'm hungry. It's just like it suddenly occurred to me. You know, uh, that's that's me locking in and really getting getting going on something. Um, so the long and the short of it is, is I'm working from home tomorrow. Nice. So and we're going to try to see, you know, I want to start kind of pushing for this happening um, a bit more often. Even if it's just one day a week that it's like, hey, this is a hyper focused. You crush stuff day. Because, I mean, I'm not trying to get off of work. I'm not trying to go, oh, I'm going to work from home like a lot of people do. And, um, you know, it's not not so much like you guys that are at the state where you've got metrics and you've got a system built around it. But, like, in a lot of corporate environments, oh, I'm going to work from home basically means, yeah, I'm going to send, like, three emails and watch TV all day. And, and so that's not what I'm planning. I'm planning a very, very rough day tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got my, you know, highly caffeinated energy drinks in there. You know, I've got I've got a mix of them. Um, I've got I got the Starbucks cold brew. I got that, and I've got liters of Mountain Dew. Um, oh yeah, I, I saw a, when I went to go get a beer. It was like almost no beer in there, and all caffeine. Yeah, which probably made you go ooh, because <laughs> <laughs> that's not normally what that fridge looks like, right? Right. Um, so I got that. I have my YouTube playlist of moderately crappy techno music, and I'm going to lock the door tomorrow and turn off the lights and go. And just hit it as long as I possibly can and get some stuff done. So we'll see how that works. The big thing for work, you know, working from home for me is the, it's more, I don't know, it's a quality of life thing so much as just having a day where people are not coming up behind me constantly wanting stuff mm-hmm. and actually being able to be productive. So I'm, I'm looking forward to proving myself on that. Nice. So how about you? Well, we had our biggest turnout ever for a developer launchpad coding jam this past weekend. Uh, it was really exciting to have that many people there participating in the event. Uh, I was walking around assisting people with the challenge, saw some really great code and kind of a few 
interesting interpretations of the challenge. That's kind of what I love about doing these. I know you were pretty much doing whiteboard challenges the whole time. You had two whiteboards set up in the back so you could work with two people at a time. Yeah. Imagine interviewing two people at a time for like two hours. Yeah. Yeah. It it was, was, it was a lot. Yeah. So if we have another crowd that big, we may need to get some, uh, some more, senior people to volunteer and help us out yeah we do need to get more senior people (laughs) if that happens again that was uh it just would have been nice to be able to kind of rotate right a little bit well it's time for the first oil change with my new car you know i don't have to drive very much so i haven't really needed to get one until now uh it's uh it's getting me around um i'm liking it it's going to be a good vehicle for a while But speaking of car maintenance, I've got something car-related for IOTs. This week for IOTs, I have a product called FixD or Fixed. I'm not sure it's uh, F-I-X with a capital D. It depends on whether it's a Unix daemon or it's a... Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, you know, it's Unix demon, it's definitely fixed D. Yeah. So the quote from the website says, no more unclear check engine lights. Fixed D is, uh, it's basically IOT for your car. Instead of having to go to the mechanic, you can plug it in and get diagnostic information sent to your phone. You know, there's a lot of times that your check engine light will come on for silly reasons, like you didn't put the gas cap on properly. Or you're out of oil. You know, just yeah. stuff that doesn't matter, really. Well, out of oil is different. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, my car is not out of oil. It's just that time for the, you know. I actually had an idiot light come on. Yeah. Um, and it's the knock sensor. So, apparently, there's some vibration before it, you know, sparks the fuel. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so it's, it's like either pre-burn or post-burn. And the guy went into this whole spiel about it. And my eyes glazed over. And I'm like, okay, I need to get a mechanic. Look at that, because that ain't me. No. You know, a lot of places like AutoZone will check this for you for free. You know, they have a machine that plugs into your car's onboard computer and reads the error code. Then they'll go inside and probably just Google it, but they'll look up the code online. What this device does is it plugs into your car and sends not only the diagnostic code, but also it looks that up and tells you kind of what needs to be done or what's going on with your car. Nice. Yeah, uh, it, it's really cool. It You know, like I said, if you don't mess around with this kind of stuff, you can just go to AutoZone and have them do it for free. But it's a cool little product. If you're into cars and IoT, check it out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? We got a tweet from Dr. Teresa Vasquez. This is great time tonight at Nash Software working with at Complete Dev Pod. We are still at it trying to solve the bowling score challenge. Yeah, this... um. This is who I was talking about when I said a unique perspective on the challenge. I I typically think of terms, when I create the challenges, I typically think in terms of console apps. Yeah. um, Because that's just the way, you know, I want to learn the method or how to do the thing. And the presentation isn't really that important to me. Well, I don't want to learn some UI framework. Well, what they did was built sort of an awesome UI that changed dynamically based on the role you're on in the bowling frame. So if you had like, you have 10 pins that you can knock down. Let's say you knock down eight. Well, the next option you get is only zero, one, or two. Nice. Really, really cool. 
nothing I had even thought of with this challenge. I know we get people every so often that will take one of the challenges and go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing that's that's next to it. Yeah. It's way cooler. And it's always fun to see that. And when, when I went and talked to him about it, because I was going around to the different tables asking if anybody had questions, and they showed me what they were doing. I was like, that is so cool. And I just loved the, the direction they went with it because they wanted to solve the problem, but they also wanted to have a functional user interface for it. Right. And I just thought like the direction they went with it was amazing. It's one of the things that I love about doing that kind of stuff. So, Dr. Vasquez, we really appreciate you coming out to our event. Send us a DM with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Path and Tumblr and have been posting things to Instagram. Actually, the event that we were talking about, you can see on our Instagram right now. In addition, you can check us out on Facebook and Twitter Live every Monday night where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer some listener questions. Join us anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. In medicine, there's a review process that doctors and students or residents use to review a failed case or one that ends with a negative outcome. This typically means loss of life, but not always. Um, It could come from amputating the wrong limb, that kind of stuff as well. It's where a lot of the policies that hospitals use have come from. Yeah, this is called a morbidity and mortality. In these meetings, the doctors, students, and residents that are involved present a case for their peers to review and discuss what could have been done differently. You know, blame isn't placed in these meetings. Honestly, that's another meeting that you have with a supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because hindsight is twenty twenty. It's really easy to look back and go, oh, you should have done this or you should have done that. What they look at with these is not, you shouldn't have done this or you should have done that. It is, hey, what could we do to have prevented you being in the place where you did the wrong thing? Yeah. Hey, Dr. House, it was lupus. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So in Agile development, specifically in Scrum, we have a similar process that we do at the end of each sprint. Uh, This is called the sprint retrospective, and it takes place after the sprint review before the next sprint starts. And the retrospective is supposed to provide the team a way to inspect their process and look for ways to improve. Now, one thing that's interesting on this is, you know, typically in the agile process, you don't have as high of a risk. And that's part of the reason why I said it's supposed to. Because in medicine, like if we did (laughs) things the way we do it in agile, you know, agile with air quotes, we would have a lot of people dying. Yeah, as we move towards. And you know what? The thing is that happened. That's just happened much further in the past. Right. Since we are using Scrum as our example, we'll start by looking at what a retrospective is and how it's used in a successful sprint. Next, we'll discuss what it means to fail a sprint by looking at some of the common causes of sprint failure. Then we'll take a look at some of the effects failure has on a team. And finally, we'll discuss how to review that failure and what you need to do to build a plan of success. So starting off, what is a successful sprint retrospective? Well, that's the one that you stay awake through. (laughs) The purpose of the sprint retrospective is to provide a chance for introspection into the team and its processes. 
Yeah, and it take, it's supposed to take place after the review, but before the next sprint starts. In other words, it shouldn't be part of the next sprint and mm-hmm. pushing timelines there because that's bad because people right. don't introspect when you do that. Yeah, it, you want to do this because you want to take what you learn from the retrospective, like what you gained from the previous sprint, and then be able to apply it to the new one. So you really, you can't have the retrospective after the new one starts. Right. It's too late. Yeah, it's too late. You may have learned things about the planning that, you know, you've already had now. So. Yeah, they probably figured that out in early medicine because, you know, they're 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 letting blood on this one guy and they go, you know, I think we used bad leeches last time. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah. yeah. Although I don't know how you tell if leeches have gone bad because they quit moving. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Typically, it's scheduled for two to three hours. Depending on your team size, really, a smaller yeah. team usually has a shorter one. Ours typically are around an hour and a half to two because we have two developers, QA, and our DBA that's sometimes there, sometimes not because they're not... They're not part of the team, but they're yeah. on the team. Yeah. The meeting was also held in person. That's kind of important. Right, because then people don't have to... Wor- well, there's a lot of things on that, too. People don't have to worry about recording devices, which yeah. is a big one. And they also can see each other's facial expressions. Everybody's engaged. They're not... You know, it's just it's just a better environment for this particular kind of thing. Right. Now, it doesn't have to be. Yeah, because if you got a remote team, you can't. Yeah. We have one person that is remote and can't make it every three weeks to come in for this. It's right. just... Yeah, that would be a lot to ask. So, the entire team participates... In the retrospective. Except for management. Right. That is a key, key thing here. Management is not allowed in these meetings. Yeah. Because what will happen is, is you'll end up in a situation where, you know, either people don't tell the truth because management is in there or they, you know, it it becomes a place for power games. Right. With that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas what it's supposed to be is a place for the team to work together and go, hey, here's what we had trouble with. Here's what we want to do going forward to fix those problems. Or, hey, we were really successful doing things this way. Let's keep doing them that way. Or, hey, I've got a great idea for how to make things better. Yeah. And when you come out of there, you can go talk to management about it. But right. And this is why you don't want your manager to be your scrum master. Right. Because that, that breaks the way scrum works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, these meetings are typically organized and run by the scrum master uh, and... Another time that it can be a problem is if you have someone like a lead developer on the team. Really? Because they are technically management. They Well, I've never seen a lead developer that had any power. <laughs> so, well, actually, that's not true, but I've never stayed there long. <laughs> I, I guess I, I should. It, it depends on your environment, I guess. Yeah, it also depends on what lead developer means, because like where I am, if you're a lead, you're just you're kind of it's almost like you're an architect. You know, you're not necessarily doling out tasks so much as you're setting how pieces are supposed to fit together and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, see, where where I'm at, lead developer actually does have managerial responsibilities. Like, they approve your time off. They do a oh, lot of yeah. that kind then of they're stuff. Then they're a legit manager. Yeah. That's a whole nother ball of wax. But they're also a developer. And right. So, it's, it, it becomes tricky at that point. And yeah. it really comes down to the team. Yeah, it also comes down to their own characteristics as well. Yeah. You know, we've kind of gotten at this a little bit already, but during the retrospective, the team's going to go over the previous sprint and talk about what went well and what didn't go well. You know, there's a lot of different ways to go about reviewing the previous sprint. 
Uh, one of the most common ones is where each member is provided a chance to list what they want to improve or remove from the sprint process. Yeah, which is, you know, probably better than some places. I, you know, I've, I've often wondered, just because I see the output of some some Agile teams that I've interacted with, and I kind of wonder if they don't, you know, start off their sprint retrospective by standing up a Festivus poll. <laughs> yeah. That just seems like that's <laughs> that's probably what their retrospective looks like. No. So, one of the teams that I was on at work came up with an acronym called ICAD. And we were doing the, we want to, what we want to keep doing, what we want to start doing, what we want to stop doing. But we realized there was something missing from that because there were things that we wanted to keep doing, but we wanted to do them better. Right. So we came up with this improve, keep, add, delete, ICAD. And that sort of became a thing for that team that I was on where each retrospective, we would come in and on the whiteboard would be improve, keep, add, delete. So let's talk a little bit about common causes of sprint failure and what does it actually mean to fail a sprint? Because that's that's almost like the definition of done as far as being a critical thing for your team and for implementing a scrum process correctly. Exactly. Because I've worked on teams that, that legit, you know, a project could be, you know, it's supposed to be a month before it's done and like eight months later it's still not done and and they're not going they're not looking around going yeah this is a failure (laughs) and i've also been on teams where oh this project was you know supposed to take a month but we changed the scope two weeks in and then changed the deadline to to be in three weeks and you didn't get it done so it's failure and i've been on both ends of that and it's it's very strange how some people characterize that yeah and i i liked what you said there because I, i didn't get into this here and i should have on the outline, but a the definition of a sprint failure should be in your team agreement. Right. When you sit down at the beginning of this process and you build a team agreement, you need to define not only what is done, but what is failure. Right. What are, what are we trying to avoid here with the failure? So typically, though, a sprint fails if all of the items in the sprint backlog are not completed by the end of the sprint. That's the basic definition. And the sprint backlog is the stories that are chosen from the product backlog to be worked on within a particular sprint. And it's immutable for the course of the sprint. Right. That is very important. We're going to talk about that, too, in a little bit. Yeah, this may or may not include testing, depending on your workplace and, you know, again, depending on your team agreement, though technically using the strictest of scrum training that I've had, it should include testing in a sprint. Yeah. Of course, my experience has been more with teams where there was like the development team and then there was the testing team and they had like separate sprints or like slightly overlapped. It was, yeah. you know, that's a hard thing to do right. Because when you start getting a dependency chain in there, then the person that looks like they dropped the ball may not be the one that did. Yeah, exactly. Or when... You've got, say, a three-week sprint, and the first week, the testers aren't really doing much. You know, Maybe they're writing some cases, but it's not really heavy testing because the developers are still building stuff. They haven't built the finished their first story yet. Right. And, and then, then the third week, the testers are testing like crazy, and the developers are dead in the water unless a bug comes up. Right. Um, now, what's really interesting, I did some training recently that gave me a new perspective on that. 
So during that first week, the testers should be writing all of their test cases. So like if it's behavior dri- driven type stuff yeah. or not BDD, but like um, the kind of cases that you would see in BDD, but yeah. not BDD. Yeah. I mean, they, they have the same acceptance criteria. So they should be able to write their tests based on the acceptance criteria because that's what they need to be testing for. Right. And then at the end of that time, when the developers are sitting around going, all right, well, I don't have anything to do because there's not any bugs. We did a good job building this. Testers are still testing, but we haven't found any bugs. That's when you need to be pulling in some organizational or technical debt stories. And they actually suggested keeping a separate backlog of technical debt. Yeah, that's a good idea. You could go grab and it's not part of the sprint. So if you don't get it done, you're not failing the sprint. And I guess for for your testers, they could do a testing technical debt thing during the first week. Yes, they they could do that. So that way you're always working and it goes back to the episode that is coming out this week, continuous improvement. Right. (laughs) But you're continuously improving. Yeah. You're eventually getting better test coverage and all that kind of stuff too. And you know, you may have a sprint where you're developing up to the last couple of days and you just need, you know, the, a break or you need to, to review some stuff. You may throw a spike in there. So you may not always grab something from, that technical debt backlog, but you should have that. It's It was a whole new concept to me. I like that. That's a better way to deal with that. I'm yeah. Glad you mentioned that one. Mm-hmm. So circling back to what is a sprint failure, the important thing to consider is it doesn't count as a failure if a story is dropped or removed from the sprint based on business needs. For example, we had that happen this sprint we found out that one of the stories we had no longer applied to what the business needed. So there was no point in building this thing that was never going to be used because we would just destroy it in the next sprint. Yeah. So we dropped that story, which allowed me the chance to grab some technical debt and bring it up and work on it this week. So the biggest reason for failure tends to be that the team overcommits on what they can do. During a sprint, of course, there's a lot of reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's because they're optimistic. The other thing that will happen is a lot of interruptions, which is what I've been dealing with. And that's why I'm getting to work from home, tomorrow, getting to work from home tomorrow <laughs> with, yeah. with the air quotes. Um, but another thing, too, is if management overcommits them and mm-hmm. pushes, that will, that will push developers a lot, too. So, Yeah, it could be bad estimations. It could also be tasks that seem easy on the outset, then you get into them and they turn out to be a lot more difficult. Yeah. We've got a couple of pages like that where, um, you know, somebody's like, Oh yeah. When this button is clicked, we need to collect this one other form field and pass it through the payment system. Right. Mm -hmm. And in certain parts of that system, it's all jQuery storing stage state on the page. And it's all jQuery. Like that's how they did all the JavaScript is just jQuery everywhere. And just like callbacks and then like it, it calls the server and, and does stuff and puts it in session and goes to another page and then loads that page up and it's manipulating jQuery. And then it puts, you know, post back, puts it in the session, redirects to, to the previous page and comes back. Wow. And you just, like there's some stuff in there that's like we've, we've got to get in there and get it right. But we, we can't do it yet. And so when somebody's like, can you change that label? We're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's like trying to fix the specter bug. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like you just don't understand what what's sitting on top of that. Yeah, I don't have those kind of problems because a lot of what I do is greenfield right now, which is quite nice. I, yeah. I do like it. I run into other problems, like uh, we were discussing one earlier today where- Where the docks just aren't there. Yeah, and I'm trying to do something that there's just nothing there to say, hey, here's how to do it. And the stuff that does is wrong because it broke. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, such a great feeling too, isn't it? Yeah. Another problem that can cause failure is when the team members don't appropriately assign themselves tasks. I've had this happen. Um, oh, where somebody's doing resume-driven development. So, like, you have a back-end developer that wants to do front-end. Yes. And they're like, hey, I think I'm going to do this really complicated Angular form instead of the thing that I do on the back-end that the, the front-end developers don't know how to do. And you're forcing the wrong, you know, it's basically you're forcing square pegs into round holes. Right. Everywhere. The other thing, too, is in that partic- particular situation, you need to ask. Right. The Like, you ask the front-end developers, go, hey, can you... Like, is there one that I could do that is small enough for me to do? Because they understand what's going on. Right. When, you know, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because our front end developer on the team I'm on has been wanting to learn uh, some back end stuff. So he said, hey, what are some tasks that I could pick up just to get me used to it again? And that is the appropriate way to do that. Yeah. Another thing that will happen is you get team members avoiding certain unpleasant tasks because they're hoping somebody else will do it. We've got parts of our system that are like that. And, you know, I've, I won't say that I've avoided them. Like the stuff that I've been working on has been more critical Mm -hmm. and it's high level stuff. And, but we, you know, we've got some stuff that, that really stinks. And I've, you know, talked to management. I'm like, we need to rotate. Like I need to do some of the sucky tasks just so we don't burn the rest of the team. But you, you get on a, that's one thing with a lot of agile teams is you get people with a little bit more seniority and they grab all the good stuff and they yeah. leave the junk, the junior devs. What you end up doing with that is you, you choke your team out because you can't ever get those junior devs up to a level where they can help you. Right. And one of the things I like about the somewhat meritocracy when I first started where I'm at, because there were two of us that were junior devs working on the back end and it was, you do what you can do though. There are some, some straight up boring things that, you know, I, I've learned to automate as much of that as possible. Yep. Uh, I've, I've got about 80% of it automated now. Uh, and I'm not really pushing that out of the 20% because I'm like, it's going to take a lot of effort to do that. I can, I can deal with a day of boring tasks, whereas before it was like three days of boring tasks. Yeah. So, you know, I can, I've got a lot of it taken care of. Um, but that said, yeah, that was, that was an issue that I have seen as well, uh, where people just don't want to do it. Of course, our structure now, there's a front end and a back end developer. So I get to do all the fascinating, interesting tasks and all the boring tasks. Oh yeah. <laughs> like There's not anybody else to, to push that off on. It's just me. And sometimes too, <laughs> you can, you know, being in that situation, you can also start kind of engineering some of those tasks away yeah. if they're if they're real repetitive. Next, changes to the team structure can drastically detriment a sprint or a project. Adding new members to a team or replacing members will affect the team's ability to perform and needs to be taken into account when committing to stories for a sprint. Yeah, my favorite is when they go, "Oh, we're adding three new people, and the you, you guys should be able to get more done, or the same amount." 
It's like, no, those three people are going to be endothermic, basically. They're pulling heat off the rest of the team. They're yeah, not going to get anything done. at least for the first sprint or two. Yeah. And when I started as a junior developer, they put me writing unit tests. Yeah. Which, so that you can learn stuff and you don't break anything and cause any problems. Mm-hmm. That's probably what I would do, too, if we had enough unit tests. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I'm working on that. but I, I think that's a great idea because I learned the code base really well for the project that I came on to yeah. by writing unit tests for everything. Also, sometimes team members get pulled from a team during the sprint, like by management and the sprint and team pretty much just suffer. Yeah. Or if they, they get fired, they quit, you know, they have a family emergency. Yeah. You know, sometimes stuff just happens. You know, honestly, if this happens, the team really should stop the sprint because that is a major change. Yeah. Then recommit based on the new team size and the new team dynamic because you may lose one person from being sick or leaving and management assigns someone new to the team that's still going to affect the way that you interact and how much you can get done scope creep occurs when the acceptance criteria changes after the story has been committed and the sprint is already started we kind of hinted at this earlier but once a story is committed it should not ever change. What we do where I work is either another story is created to address the changes or the story, if it is such a big change, the story is dropped from the sprint to then be readdressed later. Right. And that's what happened to me in this past sprint. We found out we better understood the business rules and found out, hey, this one story was because we hadn't even started working on it yet. So it was nice. But this one story does not even make sense based on what we're learning about what we need to build. Yeah. Well, it's a fundamental principle of software development that you don't write to something while you're reading it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yo, my thing is allowing scope creep to happen is like running a race where the finish line keeps changing. You know, sometimes it's a 5K, sometimes it's a 10K, sometimes it's it's an Ironman. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you're clearing a minefield and you don't know which one when you start. Exactly. Yeah. And this is awful. why you just you do not allow scope creep. Well, I mean, scope creep is a it's a sign of poor management. It really and is. Poor yeah. planning. Like there's very few things that are actually an emergency at the level that makes scope creep be, you know, be this kind of issue in our industry. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like military engineering, for instance. Okay. They probably have fewer issues with scope creep than software developers do. It's like you are <laughs> building a bridge under fire. Yeah. They don't change it and go, well, this was supposed to be a footbridge, but now it's supposed to be able to take a tank. And, oh, I know you're halfway across the river, but can you just like glue that on? <laughs> like they don't do that because people die. Yes. I, I hate to laugh at that, but yes, yeah. I, I agree 100% with that. And, you know, so the final cause of failure that we're going to talk about is poor acceptance criteria. This will cause problems throughout the sprint and lead to a lot of the previous problems. You know, a disconnect between the developers on the team can happen from unclear criteria and it causes the sprint to suffer. I know we had an issue recently and this was our fault for just not getting together and discussing it better where the view model that was being passed, like the JSON object that was being passed between the front end and the API was expecting 
a certain ID, like the row ID. Right. But the front-end developer, we didn't have a conversation between the two of us and the database person. And so the database and I built it expecting row ID. The front-end developer said, oh, ID, we're using GUIDs in our URLs. So they mean the GUID. So he was passing in the GUID. We're expecting a row ID. The first half of that, just building the taking it in. All right. It comes in. It's It doesn't read it as a integer. So it just puts it in as a zero. No problem. It just took it in and threw it into the database as a zero. But when we had to start reading it and using those IDs to get oh yeah associations, everything blew up. And now we've had to truncate tables and everything because all this stuff blew up. And it could have quickly and easily been solved by clearer acceptance criteria and more conversation between developers. Yeah. But we've gotten so good at working together, sometimes we forget we need to have those conversations. Yeah. So even if the you know, developers and testers are on the same page, um, the PO and customers may expect different things as well. That's one that tends to burn a lot of places where I've worked because they'll go, oh, you don't need to be interrupting the developers, which is true. Mm-hmm. But then they it, it that shifts into you don't need to be talking to the developers like ever. Right. And man, you, you talk about a quick way to have this problem. Um, this will get you there faster than anything else. And it really should be easy to avoid, but a lot if, of teams seem to be suffering from that. So If you do a good job with your refinements and everyone on the team looks into what you're going to be talking about in the refinement beforehand, then you should be able to avoid most of this. So let's uh, talk about the effects of failure on the team. You know, the whole team is likely to be stressed as they've been working a lot of extra hours to avoid the failure. Yeah, because most people really don't want to fail. And, you know, I know it's it's a common thing for, um, you know, people looking down on their workers to go, oh, they don't want to do a good job or they, they're trying to get out easy and they're trying to do less work. I, I don't really see that a whole lot. Um, you know, and usually if they are, they're still trying to appear like they got it done right. Like <laughs> it's not, you know, they're not going to just blow it up and go, oh, yeah, you know, well, that happens. You still got to pay me. Yeah. You know, that, that's not, that's probably not the way a long-term employee is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they are, then they're going to be gone soon. So you don't really, right. have, you know, that's a, that's such a small edge case. So they're going to be stressed just you know, from trying to avoid the failure. It may seem easy to place blame on external sources or individual team members. Yeah, the whole blame game thing is really, um, really bad. I mean, you can blame an external resource, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can get away with that and go, oh, well, this thing, you know, this thing fell down because, you know, this component vendor's support didn't get back to us and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And maybe that's the case, but does the blame actually do anything useful or does it make people go, hey, let's not rely on that component vendor so you can write all the code for that thing? And it may be the case that the team failed because of an external resource. I've had that happen. Oh, yeah. I have, too. Um, Not that long ago. It could also be that one or more of the team members are not pulling their weight or not doing what they've committed to do. Yeah. And I've worked on, you know, I've had team members like that as well. Um, You know, I've worked with people that were getting paid for eight hours a day and were working, too, especially with remote teams. Um, that's that's been a problem, you know. Like I talked about, where you got some team members that work from home some of the time, and you don't have infrastructure to make sure that they're actually working. 
you know, yeah. this kind of stuff happens. If you got a kind of a lax environment, it, it happens. But you know, I, I still, I still lean pretty hard on not blaming until there's just no other way. Yeah. And then you fire. Yeah, and it, it can be hard to fire a third party vendor. Yeah. Or you know, what's happened to me with that is the team I was working on was relying on another internal team who were building a resource that we were supposed to use. Well, the resource was built, but they kept making changes to it, breaking changes and not telling people. And, and I integrated with Facebook and had that problem. Yeah. Um, and actually, they would break things in production and you just had to drop everything you're doing and go handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it happens. Um, and then the frustrating thing is when it, they don't announce it. Yeah. Like if they say, hey, in two weeks, we're going to put out these breaking changes. You need to prepare for it. That's one thing. We can prepare for that. But when it works one day and then you go to the sprint review and it doesn't work because of this external resource. Yeah. That is very frustrating. Yeah. And, and it ultimately, you know, the team will work extra hard mm-hmm. right before this. But the next thing that happens with a failure like that is the team wants to take on next, you know, less work. The yeah. next sprint, either they're trying to recover or they're trying to hedge their bets because it's like, hey, these guys screwed us over last sprint. I cannot fail two sprints in a row because of an external vendor. And this is just human nature. There's nothing wrong with this. It's planning. Yeah. And it may be a good thing. You know, it, a lot of times it's a good idea to take on a little bit less, get yourself a good win, give the team a win. So if you're in management and listening to this, let your team take on a little bit less so that they get a win well, then and what, bring the morale back up because you you have a small smaller sprint, you get a win, then the next sprint comes around and everybody's like gung-ho, hey, yeah, we, you know, two sprints ago we had a, an issue, but we just knocked it out of the ballpark. We're going to like take on and just really rock this next one. Well, and they might they may do it in the current sprint, right? Yeah. They may go, okay, let's fix some technical debt. Let's you know, like this is an opportunity. It's not necessarily, you know, they, the, the word failure is very loaded here. Mm-hmm. You do want to avoid overreacting to this and taking on too little work to where you're not progressing, where you're doing three week sprints and you take on one eight point story. Yeah. You know, hey, come on. Yeah. With yeah. a team of five. Right. Yeah. yeah. Y- you, you can't go too small, but. You know, taking on a little bit less work after a failure, that is a great way to get a good win. Even if you take on the same amount of story points, but like stories that you know are going to be easier to accomplish or you're reusing components you've already built, you know, just go into it with that mindset. Yeah. Just use human nature as Mm -hmm. something that helps you get leverage, not something that is levered against you. Yeah. Finally, on this, management has a vital role to play in how the failure affects the team. Yeah. I mean, there, there's nothing better than a positive outlook from a manager when there's been a problem. When mm-hmm. they're like, okay, now we know something that we can, you know, we can fix this and we can go on ahead. Um, the worst thing in the world, though, is when they just flip out. Um, I worked at a company here in town that's out of business now. And this little bald guy would scream at us. Like, I mean, if you're a day behind and it was, it was legit because, oh, hey, the wireless keeps shutting out and everybody's on wireless and you, and the router is in the server room. Nobody's here that has a key and it took time to pick the lock to reboot the router. 
and they had like a little blue Linksys for like 50 people, which was another problem. And so, you know, you'd be like a day behind on something because, hey, I lost three days out of the sprint. And, he, you know, he would pull you in the room and scream at you. I mean, it was like spittle flying screaming. It was just over the top. And a little bitty guy. I mean, you know, he's like you know, he's like five one or something, you know, and you're just going, dude, you, you can't. You know, you've got these, you got a couple of dudes in there that are well over six foot and you're screaming at them and you don't want that kind of thing from management. That's when I would just hand him my laptop, show him, you know, a certain finger and walk out the door. At least one of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't, I I don't put up with that. Now, you know, you've met my lead, one of my lead developers and he and I have gotten into some arguments. You don't, you don't put up with that. Especially when I was, I was quitting I'll tell Chewing you, tobacco? Yeah, I'll tell you, you don't put up with that when it's not a major recession. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah, you know? that 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 does put a different perspective on it. That yeah, really because he knew he could get away with it. Yeah, but I, I also know my personality, and I'm the type that would yell right back. Yeah, and probably get fired, but yeah. I would I would yell right back. And and you know, honestly, I kind of wish I had just like looking back on it. No. Um, but if you get a manager that leans towards negative reinforcement, like that can work for a little bit, but it's not really successful in the long run. I know you guys, you guys have to go back in, right? If you fail a sprint. Right. And yeah. that's a funky practice because it's, you know, th- that actually gets a kind of death spiral going. It le- at least this is what this would look like to me, you know, having, having run teams because you guys probably are all set up to work from home. You got your setup. It's quiet. It's nice. You can get stuff done. And what do they do? Oh, hey, you failed this sprint because of whatever. Let's pull all of you into the office where you can work on a laptop screen and have people walking around behind you all the time and asking you questions. And so what happens? Well, you fail the next sprint. And it just like that that sort of method of reinforcement is a little weird to me. I mean, okay, so first of all, if you're punishing people for um, failing a sprint, you need to look, first of all, to see why they're failing. Because if it is a external vendor, if it's you don't have enough manpower, things aren't specced out, um, somebody's not pulling their weight, like none of those things are things that you punish a team for. So I, w- I would just say that they got to step up their management. Like I don't, I don't see another way to fix that. The the biggest problem I see with this is that it's a strong motivator to do just enough to pass. Yeah, people what- don't want to try new things because they're afraid of failing. Yeah, and that's one thing I I kind of watch for um, is developers getting defensive because when I start seeing that, it's like okay, I've got to either redirect this person or I've got to try to get them away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the reason is is because once you start having that fear of failure, you will create failure. Right. Well, so given all this, reviewing failure is you know how do you review it now that you know what it does to the team, how it happens? Now we can talk about actually reviewing it. Right. And the most important thing when reviewing a failure is something we've already talked about a little bit, and that is to not play the blame game. This is something we've all been tempted to do, uh, especially when you know exactly whose fault it is that you failed. Oh, yeah. The, the purpose of reviewing what happened isn't to place blame, but to find a better way of doing things so that the team can succeed as a whole. Now, that may mean that that person's gone. Mm-hmm. In you know, extreme circumstances, but you don't start there. Right. And as a team, it's very, very toxic for you to start blaming a teammate. Mm-hmm. Because if that person stays, guess what? The whole team is is now against them. And you, don't, you just don't want to set up that dynamic. Like, that's not the purpose of a review. Mm-hmm. When you're reviewing a failure, 
the purpose and goal is to find the root cause of that failure and identify ways that it can be addressed. So look into what happened within the sprint to cause the failure. You know, we've, we've mentioned a few things like it could have been overcommitting. It could have been, Hey, we were relying on this third party vendor that didn't do what they said they were going to do. It could be a lot of things, but you want to look at, all right, what caused that? And then discuss ways that it could have been solved or mitigated earlier in the sprint. Yeah, this is almost like a practical application of stoicism for project management because you you don't have a manager in the room, right? Mm -hmm. So you cannot fire this person. So you can't deal with it that way. You deal with the things that you can handle. You know, and that's that, that's really the deal with the blame game. Even it's not it's not even just the the toxicity that it creates. It's just the fact that yeah, you're you're going on about something you can't do anything about. Right. Like, do you want your whole team to feel helpless? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I can't really add a whole lot on that, but. Problems tend to fall into either a problem with the process or a problem with personnel. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. Um, you know what a problem with personnel really is? It's a problem with process. Now, it may be the hiring process. There's more to it than just, oh, hey, this person isn't doing their job. Maybe they've been doing a really good job. And, you know, during this sprint, their kid got really sick. And they took a lot of days off. I know we came really close to failing one sprint because our QA person's kid got really sick and she missed several days because of that and wasn't able to test. Um, thankfully, she came and worked some nights and did a lot of extra work to make sure the team didn't fail. Right. But, you know, it may not be, oh, hey, they're just slacking on the job. It may be oh, hey, they are going through a rough divorce. You know, their their kid may be sick. They may have just moved. And it's just an, an off. Yeah. Sprint. Or they're just off. Yeah. Just in general. I mean, you know, especially with shorter sprints, mm -hmm. you can have somebody that's just kind of off their game for a couple of weeks and there's not really any particular reason. You know, it's it's hormonal or it's, you know, seasonal or, you know, something that's that they can't even pin down. The retrospective is the is best really at determining problems based on process. Yeah. You know, it's not really the place for, hey, it's your fault we failed. Well, the thing is, is if you get the process sorted out, the personnel problems will show up. Right. All right. Like there's not a confounding factor. It's it's sort of like, um, it's like a criminal trial, right? If you follow the process right, you can determine guilt or innocence. If you instead put them on a scale and weigh them against a duck to determine if they're a witch... <laughs> You might get a wrong answer. Because ducks float and so do witches? And, well, witches are made out of wood. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Python. Yeah. <laughs> All um, the Python um, programmers are surprised that you don't get that joke because they have to get it like they get it with their manual, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing I love about Python programmers. It's like, I don't like the language that much, but the fact that like that's just strewn through all the stuff is great. One, two, five. Three, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the the whole like thing from Holy Hand Grenade of Antioch is in the source code. Oh yeah, I, I love that. I'm, I, Python's cool, guys. That's that's all I'm gonna say. One of the best ways to get to the root cause of a problem is the five whys. We've discussed this in previous episodes too. Uh, in this technique, you continue to ask why until the root is found. Yeah, or until something you can control is found. Right. So, you say, we failed the sprint. 
Why did we fail the sprint? Well, QA didn't finish testing in time. Why did QA not finish testing in time? Jim Bob didn't get his code done on time. Why didn't Jim Bob get his code done on time? Well, Jim Bob walked for four hours a day instead of coding. Why did Jim Bob walk for four hours a day? Well, Jim Bob, you know, yeah, you is, just keep is asking, ticked off at management. Well, we can't really do anything about that. Why is Jim Bob ticked off at management? And you keep going, and eventually you'll get to something that's like, you know, hey, this person's getting all the crappiest work in the system. You know, yeah. maybe we need to change the way we're allocating things so that this guy quits getting burnt out. Or at the very least, we need to cross train so when he gets canned, mm-hmm. we're we're there. Like you get to the you get preventative maintenance and a fix at yeah. the same time if you just keep doing that. The idea is to distill down to the cause of the problem from its symptoms. So like you go through and go, well, why is this happening? Well, that's a symptom of this. That's a symptom of this. That's a symptom of this. Going back to medicine, <laughs> yeah, bringing it full circle here. You know, once you've reached that ultimate reason or the the root problem reverse the order right is it plausible in other words did the doctor cut off the wrong leg because he went to public school yeah bad example (laughs) (laughs) well like you want to reverse the order to see if the problem logically flows from that root so with your example of jim bob that logically flows you know jim bob is getting all the the crap work so he's not motivated so he's mad at management. Yeah. So he goes on, you know, four four or five hours of walks per day. So he doesn't finish his code. Therefore, QA doesn't get it in time. Therefore, they don't finish testing. And that that logically follows. So you ask the whys to distill down the symptoms. Then you turn it around and you create a story out of that back up. Right. In other words, in an alternate timeline. What would Jim Bob have been doing and how do I create a course of action for him that would have resulted in QA? Exactly. And that goes right into our next point and our final one, which is planning for success. Once you've identified the problem, the team needs to put a plan in place to prevent this thing from happening again. Right. Which is why you make sure you keep the Festivus poll handy so that you can bring it out at the next sprint retrospective and and complain about the same thing, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) Part of the reason for iterative building in this whole agile process is to improve the process along with improving the development. The reason this happens between the review and the next sprint is so that you can implement the plan in your next sprint or iteration. Sometimes, however, these problems come from external resources that your team doesn't have control over. Yeah. And you, in these cases, you have to have a plan for what to do if one or more of the resources is not available. Um, I've seen teams do a number of different things on this. Uh, one of them, of course, is going, okay, well, we're going to take on less work because we have this risk. Another thing, and this one seems to be a lot less successful, but it seems reasonable. It just doesn't work out this way, is where they'll say, okay, we're going to take on a little bit more for this sprint including this task and either this task or this task will fall. So like if, you know, the thing that's dependent on the external resource, if they don't have that resource, okay, we're going to pull that card and we'll go on with the other thing. Or they'll say, okay, well, we got this external resource. So this other thing we're not going to do. What project management hears when you do that is, is these guys didn't do all the stuff they promised. They will never remember that conversation, but it's always tried at least once or twice. And then you just go, yeah, that's never going to be a thing. (laughs) (laughs) No. You want to have a failover in case the resource goes away. Yeah. You know, Either it, temporarily or for good. Right. You, you don't know. 
And so you need to have that in place so that if that resource you're relying on goes away, you can still get the core of what you need to do done. If the problem is a personnel problem or other team members, then the team as a whole needs to work with them. You know, like going back to the Jim Bob example. I like this one. So with that, if the problem is, hey, Jim Bob's not getting his work done in time, the rest of the team needs to look at it and go, hey, he's getting all the crap work. Maybe we should let him do some of the interesting stuff. Yeah. And know? I've actually got that on my team right now where we've got a we've got a team member that's been very cranky um mm-hmm. in, in stand up meetings and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, some of the some of the members of management were like, Wow, he's you know, he's ticked off and I'm like, Look at what we've got him doing. Like he's getting the worst, like the most awful stuff. Like it he he's working on systems that have broken like four programmers in a row. Like they're yeah. just they just burn out. Because, you know, when, when you get in there and you know anything about it, you just keep getting hit with it. It's like we need to rotate him out into some other stuff and ro- rotate other people in, you know, partially for cross training, but also because, hey, nobody should like that's not anybody's day job to deal with that all the time. You know, it's, it's like a it's like a special ed teacher. It's like they want to work with the kids. They don't want to mop up poop all day. Mm-hmm. It's not what they went to school for. And, you know, that's that's also reasonable. The other thing is if you have a team member that actually has a problem with the entire team. There's not a whole lot you can do. So, you know, and the whole team kind of talking to them and figuring out what's going on, that'll kind of shake that stuff out. Whereas if it's just an interpersonal problem between a couple of team members, the rest of the team jumping in there and going, okay, we've got to figure out some way to work. That puts the onus on both parties. This could be that someone is overwhelmed. You know, it, it's not a, they're working in an area of the code that just is boring and they're con- continually having to do that. But it could be, hey, they're being asked to do things that is a little bit beyond them now, and maybe they should be given less per sprint. Yeah. And or some other member of the team can just help them a little bit. Right. And, and bring them up. Like, you you cannot react to problems when you don't know what the problem actually is. Yep. And finally, sometimes it means talking to management about replacing that person. Like you said, if they have a problem with the entire team. Yeah, or if they're just getting toxic. Yeah, then maybe they need to move to another team. And it might be better for everybody else. And, you know, that's the thing with people getting fired. I mean, you don't want to fire somebody if you can help it. But usually most tech companies that I've worked in, by the time somebody does get fired, you know, for for the reasons that they should get fired, it's better for everybody, Mm -hmm. including that person, because now they can go find a job that isn't like the one they're in. In medicine, the idea of a morbidity and mortality conference is to look back on a case after the fact, when the emotions around it have kind of died down some. The doctors will put together a case study from what happened and then discuss it with their colleagues. While we don't exactly do this for a failed sprint or a failed project in development, it might be something worth looking into. We discussed this in terms of Agile and Scrum because they allow for process improvement as you are building a product or working on a project. However, the ways of addressing and dealing with failure are not restricted to just the sprint retrospective or just Agile Scrum methodologies. They can be applied to failure in any area of development, even waterfall methodologies or Entire project failures. And I'll give you a good example on that. 
that, that I've used. When you scope stuff out and you go, hey, here's here's how we want to do this part. And it goes to the team and they, they look it over and they have feedback. That's the point where you go, okay, what did I need to do on my information gathering differently to already have had that feedback included? Very good point. Because I do that all the time. Yeah. The idea is to review what happened to cause the failure and then work as a team to determine how to prevent it from happening again in the future. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? I just want to emphasize something that you know kind of came up when we were having this discussion, you know, particularly about the blame game. And that is the point that humans are not fungible. Now, if you're not familiar with what this term means, it means that basically any one of you know this fungible thing can be replaced by any one other of this fungible thing. So, for instance, if you have a dollar bill and you trade with a friend that has a dollar bill, those two dollar bills are front are fungible. It's your your dollar bill versus theirs. There's no difference in value. Now, if it's a dollar bill that your grandfather gave you, you know, thirty years ago, and your buddy you know, switches it out for a dollar bill that just came out of his wallet, that's a different thing. That's the difference between fungibility and not being fungible. Human beings on a team or, you know, doing things are not fungible. And you you make a pretty terrible mistake when you assume that they are. Um, I've worked on a lot of teams where you've had one or two people that really didn't pull their weight. And the reaction in a lot of those cases has been cut this person loose. And that sounds okay on paper, and sometimes it is exactly what needs to happen. But what is interesting is the team's perspective tends to shift after the fact because they get somebody else on there to replace that person, and the person replacing them can't do the stuff. You know, there's a ramp-up time. There's uh, differences in process. There's differences in personality. Like all the you know, essentially relationship technical debt that you established with the pre- previous person isn't there anymore. And so it's really something you should think about a lot before you start advocating for somebody to get cut loose, um, just you know, for your own benefit. Like that person may not be able to be replaced like you think. And that's pretty much all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.